This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. My name is Jeremy Rosansky. I'm uh, one of the incoming programming directors uh, for the Federal Society here at the University of Chicago. And we're pleased to uh, welcome Professor Aaron Nielsen from Brigham Young University Law School. Um, Professor Nielsen uh, teaches and writes on administrative law and federal courts. Uh, he was previously, uh, he's, he's a graduate of uh, Harvard Law School, Cambridge University, uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and he clerked for Judge Jerry Smith, Judge Janice Rogers Brown, and Justice Samuel Alito. Um, and uh, providing a response uh, to uh, uh, Professor Nielsen is our own Professor Daniel Hemmel, who's no stranger to the Federal Society as an interlocutor. Um, and uh, they actually recently co-wrote Chevron Step One and a Half, I guess, uh, in uh, somewhere in the gestation of publication. So, without further ado, uh, please welcome uh, Professor Nielsen. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm also excited. Uh, Professor Hemmel says that he has never been able to make the laser pointer work, but watch. There we go. <laughs> there we go. I can't make it go back. Yeah, I can. All right. Um, so I'm going to tell you right now up front, this is going to be a little bit schizophrenic, um, and that's the reason why is administrative law is changing. So by the time I got the invite to now, things have happened. Um, so you're going to kind of see the evolution of my presentation um, through what's been happening with administrative law. When I was initially invited to come, they wanted to um, hear um, Justice Scalia's evolving views on Chevron. Um, so that was the, the presentation that I had. Um, that's all changed, um, because now we have somebody who, uh, we'll see where he evolves, but uh, Justice Gorsuch's views appear very strong already on Chevron, so we're going to see how all that plays out. So this is how I hope to do this. I mean, first, I'm going to talk about um, the evolution of Justice Scalia on this point. Then I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about uh, Justice Gorsuch and some of my own thoughts for what the court should be thinking about when it comes to questions of, of deference. And then finally, hopefully, I can tie these two things together. So let's get started. Uh, we're going to start with Justice Scalia's evolving views on deference. This is a true picture of Justice Scalia. Um, you can see how much things have changed. In the 1980s, he smoked a pipe um, during his confirmation hearings. Um, I, I wonder how that would have gone over if, if Justice Gorsuch would have just taken out a, a Sherlock Holmes pipe at that. Um, maybe he would have been more of a corncob pipe. I'm not sure. Um, but it's really interesting. So I'm going to talk about how Justice Scalia's views changed on Chevron. But to do that, I'm really not going to talk about Chevron at all. Instead, I'm going to talk about Chevron's cousin, um, um, Seminole Rock deference. And there you can see Justice Scalia's evolution on deference, the most uh, obvious. So we're going to start off with the history of Seminole Rock deference. Um, Seminole Rock deference from 1945, um, the language, this is the famous language, um, you know, the ultimate criterion is administrative interpretation, which becomes of controlling weight unless it is plainly erroneous or inconsistent <coughs> with the regulation. And this is the language that's now quoted all of the time um, when an agency is interpreting its own regulation, and it's taken on very large status um, in, in evaluating um, whether the agency is going to win. Um, but it's interesting, at least as a historical matter, um, the Seminole, um, Seminole Rock deference as we know it is not the deference that the Supreme Court intended to create. Um, there we go. All right. Uh, initially, I'm, I'm, right now I'm cribbing. Uh, this is from Sonny Knudsen and Amy Wildermuth's wonderful article in the Amory Law Journal, um, which is about the history of this. And it's in fact the case, and I, you know, I've gone back and I've checked, um, for the first long time after the decision was announced, um, it was not cited very often and wasn't cited for a big proposition. Um, and that's some tied to the specific context of the case. Uh, it was understood as requiring a formal statement of the agency's interpretation. That, inter that formal interpretation had to be issued contemporaneously 
with the decision itself. And for the first long time, it was limited to the price control context in which it arose. Um, so this was a very narrow doctrine, and you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, Professor Kenneth Culp Davis, one of the legends of administrative law, um, wrote a lot of articles in the 1950s, and he said this entire thing is hardly more than dictum. Um, that's how it was understood five years after the decision. Um, <coughs> Courts eventually started expanding it, as they are wont to do sometimes. Um, and if you read their article, they go through this, um, especially in the DC Circuit. The DC Circuit latched onto this and started making it bigger and bigger. Um, and eventually, it culminated in um, Justice Scalia's decision in Auer v. Robbins. And if you hear anything about Seminole Rock deference, they will often call it. Um, Seminole Rock slash Hour Deference, or sometimes they'll just call it Hour Deference. The two terms have become synonymous. And this was written by Justice Scalia. Uh, but the thing that you have to understand about Hour Deference is Hour Deference is not like Seminole Rock Deference, or at least Seminole Rock Deference as originally understood. Um, they're, they're synonyms, at least in the popular vernacular. Well, I guess there's no popular vernacular. Um, but among, uh, among lawyers, um, but it's, this is Seminole Rock on steroids. Uh, they don't require the things that were at issue in Seminole Rock. It doesn't have to be a contemporaneous interpretation. Um, it can be a long, distant interpretation. And it could be a changed interpretation. Um, likewise, uh, it doesn't have to be in, in, in a formal document or anything like that by the agency. Um, sometimes even as an hour, an amicus brief. Um, they'll send an amicus brief, a litigation that's been ongoing. And of course, oh, okay, now we know your interpretation and we are going to defer. Um, and this... This is the law right now of the United States. And I think it's important to kind of pause for a second and say, this is from Justice Scalia. I did a quick Google of arch-conservative Scalia, um, and this is the picture that came up. Um, it's actually quite easy to find bad pictures of the conservative justices. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of them. So I'm just going to pause for one second. This is a quick aside. Uh, I clerked for Justice Alito, and as far as I'm aware, there has never been a good photo published of Justice Alito <laughs> uh, that, that, that I have ever seen. Um, so let's just pause for a second. Here we go. Um, <laughs> the grainy, the grainy um, Alito in the tuxedo um, with kind of a sneer. Um, th that's not a good picture. If you see that, you're like, you're not doing well in the, your media relations. Um, or this one where he is um, wearing the tuxedo, looking down and reflecting on, on what the misdeeds he has done in his past sins. Um, <laughs> uh, this is the worst one. Um, they just took like the group photo, uh, and it's a bad group photo, and they just blow up his face, and they just show that. So I am duty-bound as a as a Alito clerk to give you a good picture of Justice Alito. Um, here we go. Uh, he actually is a very funny and friendly man. Um, he is personal friends with Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> but you'll never know that. Um, because if you read the media reports, um, you'll say, look, there's the, 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 those, those conservatives. And Scalia is very much in that group. So you say, um, Scalia, how is it that Scalia, um, far from being the one who's like, you know, fighting back on deference, he is the most, uh, he wrote our, uh, which is the most expansive deference um, that the Supreme Court has. Um, so one lesson from that, if you had to take nothing away from nothing else but this, um, read the newspaper, um, but um, there's more going on um, than the newspaper sometimes lets on. Um, Justice Scalia's views on these issues, all of these justices' views are very different. Um, so um, <clears throat> here's the key. This is one of the keys if you want to understand Justice Scalia's cases. Uh, Justice Scalia hated mushy five-part balancing tests. Uh, of, of all things um, that Justice Scalia hated, and there are many, many things um, about the law that he thought this is, that we've, we've gone off track, um, balancing tests um, were the worst. Uh, and I think, again, I don't know for sure um, why he wrote Hour the way that he did. Uh, I suspect that he thought, wait a minute, all these context limitations, um, all of these are just invitations for confusion and complexity that we don't need. Um, by the way, um, the rule of law is the law of rules, I believe, um, with some confidence, is the most cited law review article in the history of the University of Chicago Law Review. Um, 
I'm fairly certain that is true. Um, and it's great. You should read it. It's, it's really good. Uh, you know, just as an aside, uh, recently um, Steve Calabrese and Gary Lawson have written a response to this article in the Notre Dame Law Review, which I think is called The Rule of Law is the Rule of Law. Um, and it says, well, sometimes law is rules and sometimes it's not. Um, but for Justice Scalia, the default was, I need to have some sort of rules and framework, and if there's a bunch of contextual limitations on something, it's not really going to work. Um, so I think he wrote Hour that way very broadly, because that way it's easy and clean to administer. Um, but then a funny thing happened, and this is where the story uh, starts, to, starts to change. Uh, one of Justice Scalia's law clerks, John Manning um, at Harvard, uh, wrote what has become one of the most significant law review articles um, in you know, recent decades, at least in administrative law, if you just want to base it on real-world impact. Um, he wrote the... Uh, um, uh, Professor Manning said, you know what, take, take Chevron, put that over here. Seminole Rock is different um, because it has... Um, with Chevron, Congress passes a law and the agency interprets it. But with Seminole Rock, the agency promulgates the regulation and then interprets the very thing that it promulgated. And if you'll go back historically, that particular um, combination of powers was considered particularly pernicious. Um, so he went, goes back to Montesquieu and Blackstone and Locke and said this violates a long tradition against self-interpretation. Um, and Justice Scalia found this and it completely changed his views on Seminole Rock. Um, so the first was uh, Talk America, where he just did it as concurring, um, and he started, you know, he started saying, well, I guess I'll quote briefly, um, for, a while, for a while in the past, I've un un uncritically accepted that rule, our, which what he wrote, um, so he, he should uncritically usually accept it, um, but I've become increasingly doubtful of its validity, and then he goes through and explains um, why maybe Chevron's all right, um, but our's definitely different because of the bad incentives that it creates, and he ends with a cite to Montesquieu on the spirit of the laws. Um, when he wrote this, this got people's attention. Like, we don't know what's going to happen with this in the court, um, but that's an unusual opinion, especially because he was reversing his own his own view. But he's just writing for himself, and you know, they often get opinions for themselves, and nothing happens. More happened in this line. Um, he did it again in a case called Decker, um, and there he dissented. Uh, so before it was just a concurrence, just saying, this, here's an idea. Then he dissented again by himself, um, and he said, wait a minute. Um, for decades, and for no good reason, we have been giving agencies the authority to say what their rules mean under the harmless-sounding banner of deferring to an agency's interpretation of its own regulations. Um, enough is enough. And then he just went um, you know, guns blazing against our slash Seminole Rock deference. Uh, after he passed away, there was, um, you know, Justice Thomas gave this anecdote where he said um, that once Justice Scalia was harshly critical of an important precedent, just a horrible opinion, one of the worst, and Justice Thomas whispered, uh, well, Nino, you wrote it. Um, and you can guess which of these opinions it is. You know, you can, it's a fun parlor game, um, probably only in law school. Um, don't go home and play that game. Um, but... You say, well, what is it? I, I don't know this for a fact, but I strongly suspect that that case um, was our. Uh, I suspect that that was the case. And I say that, one, because Scalia was so vocal in his criticism of our, and also because Justice Thomas took the baton from Scalia and became equally critical of our. Um, and recently... Um, when the court denied cert, before Justice Gorsuch joined the court, um, Justice Thomas dissented from the denial of cert on the question whether they should overrule um, our slash Seminole Rock, um, and he ex explicitly adopted the Scalia-Manning criticism of it. So what does this have to do with um, Chevron? Well, here are the takeaways for me. Justice Scalia was willing to change his mind. He once quoted Justice Jackson for the idea that I see no reason why I should be um, consciously wrong today because I was unconsciously wrong yesterday. Um, so if he was persuaded, and he could be persuaded, um, Justice Scalia would change. But he wanted a bright line. 
he wasn't going to um, jettison our for just like a context-specific, let's try to figure this out, like a Mead version of, of what this is going to look like. That, that is not what he was going to do. He needed a bright line. Manning gave him a bright line. The bright line was just get rid of this thing, um, and here's why. And he said, oh, well, I could, that's something I can live with. Um, he cared about the separation of powers. He wasn't getting rid of it because he didn't like it. Manning's argument wasn't... Um, this is bad policy. Manning's argument was this is historically um, contrary to our separation of powers norms. That also sounded with Justice Scalia. Um, he was bold. Uh, once he considered, considered he was wrong, I, I love it when you see a professor who will write something and then later will, will, will write something opposite and acknowledge um, that they've changed. Um, if you think that you have all of the answers the first time you've tried something, you're probably not thinking hard enough. Um, and that was true for Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia, it's easy. Um, you know, he could have just sat there and not really said anything, and it's not, not going to change anyone's views of Justice Scalia. Um, but he said, no, I, I disagree with my own analysis, and he changed. And finally, I suspect that the same thing might have happened with Chevron. And, what, and why do I say that? It's because the exact same pattern is true. Um, when you had Chevron, at least as initially decided, nobody said when Chevron came out, oh, this changes everything. Uh, wow, we just completely changed how we go about interpreting um, agency regulation, uh, agency, how, how judges review agency interpretations of statutes. Um, that's not the case. This is from the Administrative Law Review. Um, and at first, it just seemed like a regular case. Um, it was, you know, they, they talk, kind of talked about things, um, but it didn't seem that different from what came before it. Um, it wasn't like people were dissenting. It wasn't a big hot button issue. So how does Chevron become Chevron? How is it that now Chevron is the most cited of the administrative law, at least deference cases? Um, well, some of it, a large part, is the story of the D.C. Circuit. Um, just like with Seminole Rock, the D.C. Circuit took this, um, and they said, all right, we're going to start using it. And they started making it a bigger part of how the D.C. Circuit went about its cases. Uh, a large part of that um, is Justice Scalia, then Judge Scalia, um, and Judge Silberman, um, who is a good friend of the justice. Um, justice Scalia wrote a, another very famous law review article. This is in the Duglaw Journal, um, and where he talked about what Chevron really is about. Um, so the idea that Chevron, how it became as big as it did, um, look, I don't want to overstate it, but in large part it is because of Justice Scalia and some of the others on the D.C. Circuit. Um, and Justice Scalia, as with Seminole Rock, had a very expansive view of Chevron. Uh, so if you look, at, read, read his opinion in Mead. Um, his dissent in Mead is the most expansive no context limitations on how Chevron works. He didn't win that case, um, but the analysis is very similar to the sort of analysis in our. Um, if it's an agency interpreting a statute, we defer. Uh, that's the same simple sort of bright line analysis that he wanted. And he didn't win, but then that's a case that still bugged him for a long time. He'd always go back to Meade when the court, you know, he thought went the wrong path and, and ruined what Chevron was supposed to be all about. Um, again, this is Scalia. This is Justice Scalia, um, on, uh, who is the most vocal proponent of a robust Chevron doctrine. Um, then fast forward to city of Arlington, where he had the majority pen, and um, actively defends uh, 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 Chevron against uh, you know, one of the most aggressive dissents um, in a long time from the Chief Justice. If you want to read an aggressive administrative law dissent, you should read the Chief's dissent in the city of Arlington. Um, but who's he dissenting against? He's dissenting against Justice Scalia, who again is announcing a very, very, very broad view um, of what Chevron is supposed to be. Um, some people, you can look in the literature, some people say, did he just win Mead after all? He just kind of smuggle in Mead um, by the city of Arlington. Uh, I don't think that's true, but you'll see that in the literature. But the point, the, the thrust is certainly right, um, that he had a very broad view of this, which, again, I think was true just as with Seminole Rock. Um, but at the end, um, towards the end of his time on the court, 
things started to change a little bit. Um, there was a case called Perez um, where he wrote separately and he took a shot at Chevron that got a lot of people's attention because Justice Scalia, again, was the one who was the most um, vocal in his defense of Chevron um, and he took a shot at it and he says, um, he quotes um, section 706 of the APA that the reviewing courts interpret statutory provisions um, and you're like, wait a minute. Um, that's been the argument all along, Justice Scalia. Um, what changed? Again, I'm not sure. There was another article, this is forthcoming, it's been a work in progress for a long time, uh, by Professor Aditya Bamzai at the University of Virginia. This article is forthcoming in the Yale Law Journal, which is an historical examination of ju um, judicial deference to executive interpretations of the law. Um, I suspect, though we can never know for sure, I suspect that that article would have done the same thing for Justice Scalia's views on Chevron that Professor Manning's article did for Justice Scalia's views on Seminole Rock. I think he already was starting to have misgivings, and I think that that would have said, give him the historical basis for him to be confident and say, wait a minute, we have, we have gone off track. Um, we will never know for sure um, because Justice Scalia passed away. But that is my instinct um, for where Justice Scalia was. Now, we're going to go to part two. We're going to talk a little bit about Gorsuch, and then we're going to wrap it back up. Justice, Gor Justice Gorsuch has a different view on all of this. Um, Justice Gorsuch, um, while a circuit court um, took a very aggressive anti-Chevron view, I don't know if you watched the confirmation hearings, um, I think Chevron was... Um, was on, you know, it was. You don't usually see that hashtag Chevron trending on Twitter, um, but I, 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 if it wasn't, it's was almost. Um, you heard Chevron all of the time, and it's funny to you know to listen to folks who you know who are not lawyers but are, are you know good reporters not trying to explain this thing, and they're like, you, you see, you hear them testing out the words. It's like, is that how this really works? Because um, this is a, it's a very kind of a technical doctrine for someone who's not steeped in administrative law. Well, Judge Gorsuch is, um, and he is very much on the anti-Chevron um, bandwagon here, maybe leading the bandwagon. Um, now he's confirmed, um, and you'll see in the media um, speculation that our deference may not be long for this world. Um, there might already be five votes um, to get rid of our. Before Justice Scalia passed away, there were cert petitions filed um, Judge um, Easterbrook um, had teed it up um, on a dissent, on a concurrence and denial of rehearing in Bonk, saying this is the perfect case for the Supreme Court um, to take this. And people thought they would. Justice Scalia passed away, and the court denied cert. Um, but people are counting noses, and I think the other five votes to get rid of Seminole Rock. Uh, and they're probably, I, I don't know, I don't know for certain, but there's a good chance that there are um, just. Um, you know, Justice Thomas has openly said this is you know, unconstitutional. Um, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito have concurred, saying that they're open to hearing the argument. Justice Alito has written separately again to reiterate that point. Um, and then there's a, an opinion from 2011, um, Christopher V. Smith-Klein, um, which there was a five-justice majority, um, which took a narrow view of this. Um, so you, you know, you, the Supreme Court bar is pretty smart, and they're thinking to themselves, maybe there's an appetite now to take this. I don't think Justice Gorsuch is going to do anything um, to dissuade that move when that petition comes, which it surely is coming. Maybe it's even filed now. I'm not sure. Um, but what about Chevron? Um, uh, I'm not so sure. Um, I don't think that there are five votes um, to overrule Chevron. Again, this is not based on anything inside, just kind of looking at the court. Um, I think, however, if you again go back and read the Chief Justice's dissent in the city of Arlington, um, Chief Justice had three votes for that. He had his vote, he had Justice Alito, and he had Justice Kennedy. Um, he didn't have anybody else. Since that, um, Justice Thomas has now concluded before, you're going to just give it another presentation, Justice Thomas's evolving views on Chevron. Um, Justice Thomas, of course, wrote Brand X, which is a very pro-powerful Chevron opinion. Now it said this is all unconstitutional. So take him from that category and put him in the other category. Um, and Justice Scalia, um, who was the, on the pro-Chevron camp, um, replace him with Justice Gorsuch. 
And you've got five votes um, to, to at least go back to where this, the chief was um, in the city of Arlington. Now, I don't know for sure they're going to do that, um, but there's, the five votes are there. Uh, so I'm going to talk just briefly what that means and just some of my thoughts for what the court should be concerned about um, before they start um, overruling some of these cases or, or, or modifying them. Um, so... You know, this is a little self-promotion. Um, one of my recent pieces is about what happens if you overrule Seminole Rock. I'm going to share this with you, not because I suspect that this will get back to the Chief Justice or anything, um, but if any of you end up clerking for the Chief Justice, remember today. Um, I, 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 there's, we ought to be careful about this. Um, there's a doctrine in administrative law, um, that set the, the Chenery Doctrine, the two Chenery Doctrines, Chenery 2. And Chenery 2 says that if you are an agency, you can either make policy by prospective rulemaking or you can make policy by retroactive adjudication. Um, and it's up to the discretion of the agency. So an agency can say, the stat, imagine the statute says the FCC can regulate the public airways and consistent with the public interest, or, or whatever the organic statute says. Um, the FCC could promulgate regulations defining what that term means and saying this is what, how we interpret um, public interest. Or, um, as in Chenery, which was about the SEC, um, if the agency has adjudicatory powers, um, the agency can say we're going to do this on a case-by-case -case basis and we're going to announce the policy in an adjudication that we then apply retroactively. Um, 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 Chenery 2 is very broad. I'm not going to spend too long on this. Um, it's very broad. Um, there's some limits on this. Um, you know, at some point, the, you violate fair notice, um, but it's pretty far down. It's, it's hard to do that, especially if you're not changing the law but merely clarifying the law. You can see quickly how that's a hard line to draw. Um, so what this means is that if you are an agency, you have to decide how you're going to make policy. And you'll say, look, I'm going to go through the pros and cons of doing this. Um, one of the pros of making policy through rulemaking is I can do generic resolution of a whole bunch of issues. Um, I get more information because there's notice and comment. Um, sometimes Congress prefers it. Adjudication can be a pain. You have to deal with like an ALJ or sometimes. Um, and it's flexible because if you promulgate a vague regulation, you're going to get seminal rock deference when you interpret it. Um, so you don't have to pin yourself down um, when, you, when you promulgate the reg. Um, the pros of adjudication, you can do small, it can just be one little tiny case, or you can make a pretty, pretty big announcement. Um, it's retroactive, which you don't get with rulemaking. Um, there's no OIRA review. Um, OIRA does not review adjudications. Um, rulemaking can be a pain, too, um, because you have to go through and get all the notes and comment, all that sort of thing. Um, and it's also flexible because um, if, as long as the statute allows it, you can just pick the policy in the adjudication. So what happens if you get rid of Seminole Rock? Um, well, rulemaking suddenly becomes less attractive, right? One of the advantages in the, in the mix of things of why you might choose rulemaking is now no longer in the mix. So if you are an agency official and you're saying, do we want to do rulemaking or do we want to do adjudication? Um, with Seminole Rock, um, sometimes the, at the margins you'll say, well, let's do rulemaking because um, even if we don't know how to, how to write this exactly, uh, we can make it vague and we can then get uh, deference. Whether that, that's the more aggressive version of the theory, the other might be um, we don't have to worry so much if we didn't get it, figure everything out because if we didn't figure everything out, then we'll still get deference anyway. Um, well, if you, if you can't do that anymore if you're the agency, my concern is that the intended consequence of overruling Seminole Rock is that agencies will promulgate clearer regulations. The unintended consequence might be agencies won't promulgate regulations at all, uh, or as many, but instead will make policy through adjudication and agency threats and agency guidances and things of that sort. Um, so there's an empirical question, what are they going to do? I don't know if I have any antitrust or, or prospective antitrust folks. I was an antitrust lawyer. Uh, I want to know the cross-elasticity of demand. Um, but that's the empirical question. Um, and the Supreme Court should be thinking about the cross-elasticity of demand. Um, if, if Otherwise, you're going to end up in a world where greater use of Chenery 2, which by any measure uh, will be more problematic for regulated parties than even a vague regulation. Because by definition, by definition, if a statute, uh, 
a, regula- a regulation, even an ambiguous regulation, must be narrower than the statute that it implements. Because if it's broader than the statute that it implements, well, then it's ultra-virus. Um, so, if the statute, so imagine the statute says, regulate the airwaves in the public interest. And imagine that the regulation says, um, do it, um, you know, consistent with um, community values. I, I'm, getting, I'm just free to, you know, doing this, making this up. Well, that's at least narrower than, than the public interest, right? Um, even though it's very vague, by definition, it's got to be, it can, it, it can only be coterminous. Um, it can never be broader, and it almost certainly is going to be narrower. So if you push agencies away from rulemaking um, by making it less attractive, what you're going to get is more adjudication. Um, now, sometimes they might say the other benefits of rulemaking outweigh this, and they'll say, and then they'll go to the clearer rules. Um, but my worry is, again, the cross elasticity, are they going to end up here? In which case, you should be worried, um, you know, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, you should be worried because your concerns about uh, unfair retroactivity um, are only heightened in this context. Um, so what, what does that mean? Here's my um, a potential path. I mean, all of this one way cuts in favor of stare decisis. If you don't know if it's going to do on net good or bad for the very folks that you're trying to help, um, well, maybe you should be, be careful before you make the change. Um, if you wanted to make the change um, and you wanted to prevent that substitution away from um, rulemaking to adjudication, here's a couple of thoughts. Um, and, and you got rid of Seminole Rock. Well, you could... Um, Eliminate Chevron in adjudications. Um, you could say in adjudi- you get Chevron deference only when you promulgate notice through notice and comment rulemaking prospective regulations. That makes rulemaking more attractive. Um, and in any event, there's a whole bunch of other arguments why you might want to be skeptical of rulemaking of Chevron in adjudications, including the lack of public participation. Likewise, you may want to increase the retroactivity standard and make it a little bit harder for agencies to act retroactively. Um, now, I don't think either of these would require overruling Chenery 2, but I think that they would um, prevent some of the substitution if you were to get rid of Seminole Rock. Um, and now I'm going to finish with perhaps a difference between Justices Scalia and Gorsuch on this point. Um, again, to wrap it all up together. Uh, I think Justice Scalia, uh, if I were to make this sort of, um, hey, have you thought about something like this? I don't think that would go over very well. Um, because he would say, wait a minute, um, we should either keep Chevron for all things um, or get rid of it altogether. But the idea that you get it for rulemaking and not for adjudication, um, I don't think would be satisfactory to him. Um, I'm not sure it would be satisfactory to Justice Gorsuch either. Um, but I certainly, um, you know, look at his uh, dissent in Mead. We know what Scalia thinks about that sort of thing. Um, likewise, I don't know what Justice Scalia would think about a world where you increase retroactivity, where you say that the courts are going to be more skeptical of retroactivity. Because retroactivity, the problem with it is it's always a spectrum. It's not a bright line. Oh, that's too much um, unfairness. Uh, that's the right amount of unfairness. Um, that's not unfair at all. It's a continuum and not a bright line. And Justice Scalia, for the same reason he didn't like enforcement of non-delegation, he doesn't like that sort of thing. I think from Justice Gorsuch's opinions as a circuit court judge, he is more open to retroactivity um, being heightened. Um, we've seen that particular concern in his analysis. So there we go. That is the story. We've seen Justice Scalia. He changed with Seminole Rock. I think he might have changed with Chevron. The court certainly is in a place where it looks like it's going to change with Seminole Rock. I don't know what they're going to do with Chevron. And if they're going to do it, I hope they do it in a way that considers unintended consequences. And there we go. So I have the problem of responding to Professor Nielsen while pretty much agreeing with everything that Professor Nielsen has said. Um, but I'll, um, I'll discuss three broad categories. One, do deference doctrines matter? Right? So, so why are we so concerned about potentially overruling uh, Chevron and our? Um, two, I want to talk about the, the contingency 
uh, of these doctrines. Um, and I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean by that when I get to that. And third, uh, I want to talk about the conversation uh, that I think is happening at a subsurface level uh, when uh, we talk about Chevron and Auer. Uh, so first, do deference doctrines matter? Um, this is uh, an extraordinarily difficult thing to figure out empirically. So uh, Chris Walker and Kent Barnett have done great work looking at cases in which courts apply Chevron and in which they don't apply Chevron. And it turns out that agencies win a lot more when the courts apply Chevron. Uh, now, those of you who clerk on courts of appeals will learn that if you're going to affirm the agency, a really easy way to do that is to rely on Chevron, right, or our, right? So we don't know whether uh, the agency is affirming, the agency is winning because the court is relying on Chevron, or the court is relying on Chevron because it wants the agency to win, right? Um, you could also look at agency win rates in cases uh, where we would predict Chevron would apply, so like rulemaking, uh, and cases where we think Chevron won't apply. But the problem there is the agency also knows that. So the agency is probably going to take a more aggressive position where it thinks it's, it will get Chevron deference uh, versus where it won't. Uh, so so the, the best evidence I think we have on this comes from right around the time that Chevron uh, was announced. Uh, and there's a famous 1990 Duke Law Journal article by Peter Schuck uh, and Donald Elliott. Uh, so they look at uh, the six-month period uh, before Chevron. Chevron comes down in June 1984. And then uh, they pick up the story again in February 1985, where the Supreme Court rearticulates Chevron in a decision called Chemical Manufacturers Association versus NRDC. And you know, it could be uh, in uh, like an alternative universe, not that many light years away from here. We talk about this as the Chemical Manufacturers Association versus NRDC doctrine, rather than as the Chevron doctrine. I mean, I think the PR folks at Chevron are happy that they got this name recognition uh, for uh, so many decades. Um, though now. Now that Chevron is really being uh, dragged through the mud by uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch, uh, perhaps they, they wish that it were like the ExxonMobil uh, doctrine. Um, so in the six months before uh, Chevron, agencies win at a 71% rate across the courts of appeals. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of chemical manufacturers, they win at an 81% rate. So we see a 10 percentage point Delta. And then by 1988, their win rate falls to 76%. Uh, so that might be because they're now taking more aggressive interpretations. It might be because the Supreme Court issued a few decisions post-Chevron uh, that gave courts a way out of Chevron. Right? So what we're talking about here is a 5 to 10 percentage point difference in agency win rates, which isn't nothing, uh, but which isn't massive. Right um, now, now, why does Chevron matter at all? Uh, so, uh, it reduces the marginal cost of affirming the agency. Right. So, if you are a court of appeals judge, uh, Chevron and our right, it reduces the right the cost of, uh, of writing the opinion that affirms. It's pretty easy. You cite Chevron or you cite our, and you go from there. Uh, second, um, it reduces the cognitive cost of affirming the agency. Um, so uh, Professor Nielsen and I have written about this case that went through a bunch of names, but uh, it um, ends oh, Safari Club International versus Salazar or INRI endangered species listing. So it's about whether polar bears are endangered species. Uh, and the agency says no. Uh, and um, ultimately, uh, the D.C. Circuit affirms uh, the agency. It takes a few steps uh, and a half step in there. Um, so the D.C. Circuit panel was uh, Chief Judge Garland. Uh, well, I guess he wasn't Chief Judge. Oh, no, he was Chief Judge. Then. Judge Garland, uh, Judge Brown, and Judge Edwards. I'm not going to speculate about what was going on in Judge Brown's uh, mind because Professor Nielsen clerked for Judge Brown, so he was going to be able to predict uh, Judge Brown better. My guess is a little part of uh, Judge Garland and Judge Edwards died when they had to affirm this decision saying that polar bears weren't endangered species. Right? Like they, they, uh, they experienced some disutility, but they were able to mitigate that uh, by relying 
relying on Chevron, right? So they could go home to their children or their grandchildren uh, and say, yeah, I went against the polar bear today, but it wasn't really me, it was Chevron, right? So, so when you don't feel great about the decision, Chevron is useful. Uh, and third, if this effect also applies a level up, then uh, Chevron and our uh, reduce your reversal risk uh, when you uh, side with the agency. So what sorts of cases will this matter? Uh, well, it's not going to matter when you really want to strike down the agency. right? So Massachusetts versus EPA, the liberals and Justice Kennedy uh, kind of disregard Chevron in order to strike down uh, the Bush administration's climate change non-policy. Hard to do that if you're relying on Chevron. Hard to do that if you're... Uh, but uh, uh, the realists in the room will say, well, they were going to reach that result regardless. And it turned out Chevron didn't really constrain them very much. right? So when you really don't like what the agency is doing, Chevron doesn't seem to stop you. You can write around Chevron. Uh, you can use uh, sort of the Encino motor cars out, uh, say that uh, the agency didn't justify its opinion well enough to get Chevron. Uh, Barnhart, this uh, uh, Breyer case, gives you a whole bunch of ways out of Chevron. So you can get out of Chevron when you want to get out of Chevron. Uh, and when you feel really strongly about what the agency is doing in favor of the agency, you also don't want to rely on Chevron. Um, under those circumstances, you want to make sure that the next administration won't be able to reverse that policy. Right? So you don't want to say that the agency has any uh, room in the joints here. Um, so that's like King versus Burwell. Right? You see uh, the Chief Justice uh, not relying on Chevron, and you see the liberals coming over to the Chief Justice's side, and this way, Donald Trump can't change uh, the Obama administration's policy on uh, ACA premium tax credits. Okay, so, so Chevron seems to matter in these more marginal cases, right? Court could go either way. Uh, Chevron and our might tilt the balance toward going with the agency. Tilt of maybe single-digit, low-double-digit percentage points. But it probably ha there probably is an effect on the agencies. Uh, agencies are marginally more aggressive uh, because of Chevron. Uh, one, they know that they have a slightly lower risk of being reversed. And two, uh, they need a general counsel memo that can argue with a straight face that this is something that they can do. Right? Regardless of reversal risk, there's the straight face check. And that's easier for the general counsel to write uh, when Chevron and Auer are in the background. Um, so they're also probably slightly more likely to go through notice and comment because notice and comment increases the probability of uh, getting Chevron. Um, as for our, uh, I think the demand for guidance is highly inelastic. Uh, first, um, regulated parties want guidance, right? Regulated parties don't want to violate uh, uh, or don't want the agency to take enforcement action against them. Uh, and for that same reason, uh, agencies that issue guidance influence behavior regardless of whether that guidance is ultimately going to hold up in court. Right? Chevron or ExxonMobil doesn't want to violate uh, agency guidance and then test it out. Uh, in the Court of Appeals. Um, and the individuals who issue guidance are not the same individuals who would adjudicate. Right? So there's an intra-agency uh, allocation that happens uh, uh, when the agency issues guidance or when the agency promulgates rules. Uh, our may give the agency some incentive to be vague in its regulations so that ex post it can reinterpret the regulation to uh, achieve its preferences. Uh, though, and I'm, I'm pulling from uh, Professor Nielsen's work here, uh, that effect could cut the other way. Uh, agencies also want their decisions to be sticky. right? So if you're an agency, you know that you want outcome Y. You could say X, and X is kind of vague. It could be interpreted to be Y. It could be interpreted to be Z. Right? If you're going to promulgate a regulation, you're probably just going to say Y. Uh, get what you want. 
Um, if you say X, well, now you have some flexibility, right? Uh, and then you could promulgate regulation that says X and then guidance that interprets regulation and says Y. But you're worried that uh, you're the Obama administration, Trump will come in, and he's going to use that flexibility in order to achieve outcome Z, right? So, so our might make you vague so that you have flexibility, uh, or it might make you specific so that your successor doesn't have flexibility, uh, so that the other people in the agency who might be issuing guidance uh, don't have flexibility, right? Just as the people who adjudicate aren't the same as the people who issue guidance, the people who issue guidance aren't necessarily the same people who write the regulations. Uh, and you want regulated parties to be able to rely on uh, uh, the fact that the policy will be Y rather than Z. Right? So uh, ultimately, do these doctrines have a huge effect on the ground? I think they have a little bit of an effect. I don't think it's massive. Uh, second, I want to talk about the contingency of these doctrines, right? So uh, these doctrines make life a little bit easier for agencies, and they make life a little bit easier uh, for the White House. Uh, and in general, uh, Democrats want a larger administrative state, so they want to make life easier for agencies. Uh, but uh, during the Reagan administration, uh, when Chevron was facilitating deregulation, right, uh, there were uh, liberals who didn't like Chevron very much, right? And then in the Obama administration, the stars align, right? Liberals love Chevron because it makes life easier for the administrative state and makes life easier for the Obama administration. And, and now we have this question, well, what's going to happen? Uh, Chevron, yeah, it makes life easier for the administrative state, uh, but it also makes life easier for Trump. Uh, now, I, I agree with Professor Nielsen that the next four years are probably not going to be four good years uh, for Chevron and Auer. Uh, so the fact that it's Trump rather than Obama uh, in power, uh, I think, makes uh, conservatives marginally more uh, likely to support deference doctrines. But my, my sense of the conservative judiciary is they care a lot more about limiting the administrative state than facilitating Trump policies. Uh, they're not entirely on board with Trump policies, uh, and, and here's an opportunity to narrow uh, uh, the scope of the administrative state. Whereas the liberal judges and justices uh, have a pretty high discount rate. They're really worried about Trump, and they're willing to sacrifice some future flexibility for the administrative state if it means stopping Trump. So we might have the stars aligning whereas cons where conservative judges and justices want to use this opportunity in order to roll back the administrative state and liberals want to do anything they can to roll back Trump, right? So, uh, so I think this will be a bad four years for Chevron and Hour. I'm not sure if the doctrines will actually be overruled because there are so many ways to limit them that why, why actually overrule them and then have to explain how, yeah, you say that you care about stare decisis, but you just overruled the most cited case. Uh, that, that, seems, that seems like a suboptimal way of achieving what should be a really easy narrowing. Um, so, so, so these doctrines are contingent in their effects. That contingency, I think, doesn't work well uh, for the doctrines right now. Um, the justifications are also contingent, right? So the premise of uh, Chevron is that uh, agencies have an accountability advantage and an expertise advantage over courts, right? Uh, and the accountability advantage is a particular type of accountability. It is accountability as a result of having won more votes, right? So I am not about to question the legitimacy of Donald Trump as president, right? The type of accountability that he has is not accountability that arises out of having won more votes, right? It is an accountability ar that arises out of the fact that political, that legitimate political processes uh, have placed him in the position that he is in, right? But legitimate, legitimate political processes have also placed the judges in the position where they are, right? So the electoral accountability justification for Chevron seems weaker in this context uh, than it might have in other contexts and will seem weaker to liberal judges in this context than it has in other contexts. And the, the notion that 
the agencies are more expert than the judges, uh, I think is generally true, but it is not always true. So if you have judges who think very, who do not think highly of the expertise of the, 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 the people with whom the president has staffed agencies, uh, well, then the justifications for Chevron uh, weaken. Um, so, so prediction for the next four years, not going to be good for Chevron an hour. Not sure whether they'll be overruled or just narrowed. Uh, last point is, okay, so uh, uh, administrative law professors are spending a lot of time talking about Chevron an hour. People get uh, really revved up about Chevron an hour, as I probably am getting revved up now. Uh, and, uh, and yet, I think we all agree that the effects are at the margins. Right? So, so why, why is this? Uh, and I think the question is, you know, so, so, so Chevron is not the gas of the administrative state, right? Chevron is like, it's really, it should be the Jiffy Lube doctrine, right? It makes the administrative state run more easily, but it's not necessary in order to power the administrative state. And then the question is, are we really talking about gas here, uh, or are we talking about chickens, right? So are we really talking about cases like Chevron? Uh, Chevron's basically a default interpretive rule, uh, cited a lot, uh, but not necessary for the administrative state. We had an administrative state before 1984. We will have an administrative state after Chevron. Uh, and um, uh, ten, the, the administrative state doesn't depend upon a 10 percentage point difference in the agency win rate. right? Um, but the, the, the administrative state does depend on the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, and I think below the surface, in or if you, if you follow the citations in Justice Gorsuch's opinions on Chevron as a as a, as a circuit judge, you get to Philip Hamburger, uh, and Philip Hamburger's vision, uh, Columbia law professor, former University of Chicago law professor, Philip Hamburger's uh, vision of the administrative state doesn't end with just getting rid of Chevron and moving to Skidmore deference. Right? We're talking about a significant rollback uh, of the power of the executive branch and this sort of headless fourth branch. Um, so, so if this is just a conversation about Chevron and Hour, uh, then, uh, then we should probably reduce uh, uh, the volume and the emotional investment. Uh, but I think the con I th there's a great law review article to be written, uh, if it hasn't been written, uh, what, we, uh, what we talk about when we talk about deference, right? Uh, and, and I think we are talking about more than just uh, how a court interprets ambiguity or who gets to interpret ambiguity. And then I guess the, 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 so the question for conservatives is, is this, is this really all about Chevron and our, or is it about something more? And then the, the question for liberals is, is this really the, the Maginot line that you want to defend? Right, so so Chevron maybe uh, our uh, our is more more questionable. The Manning article is a really good article, uh, and is is this where you want to stake your defense, like in order to uh, prevent the invaders from getting to the, like the Paris of the administrative state? Uh, and I think the view on the left right now is yes. Uh, we need to save Chevron an hour uh, because otherwise the administrative state will crumble. Uh, and I would suggest that, that we can have an administrative state without Chevron an hour. Uh, and, and sort of raising the defense here uh, strikes me as a bit of a puzzle. Uh, so with that, I'll, I'll kick it back to, uh, to Professor Nielsen and to questions. Sure. Uh, I'll just really fast. I, I, again, this is not fun. These are supposed to be like, like slug it out debates, and I, I agree with a lot of what Professor Hamill had to say. One thought: um, it's true that the win rate is ten percent, but there's a dynamic effect. Um, the cases that are not brought are not measured. Um, so if, in fact, the the, doc, the deference changes, it's more likely that when you say, "Should we challenge this?" Um, you'll, you'll get more cases. So uh, we don't know that there's a there's a a, a, a lurking empirical question that we don't know the dynamic effect of this. Um, but And the other point is, you know, I'll say, I, I'm a conservative guy. I, I'm coming from, from the right. I'm a conservative person. Um, and I think that for a lot of conservatives, um, though they'll uphold things on stare decisis, um, even if it didn't matter that much, I don't think, uh, I think that it's just problematic. They would say that's just not what judges are supposed to do. Um, the idea that a judge um, we'll read the law and say, I think it means this, but because the executive branch thinks it means something else, I should not 
follow my independent judgment. I think that just sits wrong um, in a lot of a lot of conservatives. It just doesn't seem how this is supposed to be. Even if it didn't change anything, um, they're just the idea of it. Now again, um, Justice Scalia was by any definition a conservative, um, and he didn't have a problem with it. So I don't want to overstate the claim, nor do I want to say that thus, thus if you have a problem with them, thus must be unconstitutional. That doesn't follow at all. Um, but I think that if you read the subtext, I think that's part of the subtext as well, is I think that it's concerning to them. They don't think that's the role of how a judge is supposed to behave. All right, and with that, we'll, we'll take questions. Hey, thanks so much for that. Um, one question, do you think there's any chance that Justice Gorsuch's views will change once he gets to Washington and starts to deal with maybe more technically complex cases or more politically controversial cases that he's dealing with in some of the immigration context uh, in Colorado? Yeah, no, that's, an, that's a very interesting question. So it's interesting, you read all of his admin law cases, or at least the ones that they talk about, these all come up in the context of immigration, um, or at least most of the big ones. I mean, there's a few, like, land management. Um, but uh, so what does it, what does it mean? I mean, he's looking at cases differently than the cases that the docket on the D.C. Circuit, for instance. The D.C. Circuit has no immigration cases. Um, so maybe, maybe that changes. I, I don't think it does. Um, you know, Justice Gorsuch is not a rube. Um, he's a very sophisticated litigator, and you know, you don't spend ten years at Kellogg Huber and not have a pretty good sense for how what what agencies are doing. Um, but well, it'll be worth seeing. But because it, it really will be a different type of cases that he gets, and to the extent that he that he's putting due process. Um, well, his his due process. He's talking about um, about individuals um, and like you know. You relied on our precedent, and now you're, you're, you're going to get deported. Um, yeah, that's that's a little bit different. Or, or like, does this have criminal implications? That changes for doesn't come up in manufacturing context. But I suspect there's not going to be that big of a difference. I'll armchair speculate in a chair without arms. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it it may be the case that su- that well, Justice, Justice Gorsuch formed his views on Chevron uh, uh, to some extent while he was as a, as a judge and where the Board of Immigration Appeals was the agency that he dealt with the most. Yep. And I think m- most people would agree that on the rank of agencies, uh, uh, BIA is not doing so well on the curve, <laughs> right? Whereas actually Scalia uh, formed his view at the D.C. Circuit where the quality of uh, agency litigation and the quality of underlying agency documents uh, is a lot higher. Um, so, so maybe that predicts that now, maybe that's a reason to think that now their views will, will converge as yeah. Justice Gorsuch sees agency opinions that are, uh, that are better uh, than the BIAs, but I want to say that quite tentatively because you know, Justice Gorsuch knows a lot about administrative law a lot more than I do, uh, and it's not just the Board of Immigration Appeals uh, that he's looked at. Good question. Someone else? Yes. What do you think the Trump administration's position is going to be in this? Because on one hand, they seem to like governing by agency, but on the other hand, they want to destroy the administrative state politically. So do you think there's an appetite there to defend Sentinel Rock an hour or not? Um, I'm going to answer this the way I think that Professor Hamill would answer it. He would say, wait a minute, the Trump administration is a they and not an it. Um, and I suspect that there's a lot of different forces going on in a lot of those kind of cases. So, for instance, if you are at civil appellate at DOJ, um, your, ta- your task is to win cases. Um, and it would take a, 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 like a command from on high to say, don't press all available arguments. Um, so I think they'll keep pressing arguments unless you know Attorney General Sessions says not to do it. And Attorney General Sessions' job is to win cases. Um, so I suspect that it would it would take something big for them to to not do it. So I imagine that they're going to continue to litigate the cases the way that the cases have been litigated. That said, um, you will get you know, the two-for-one um, executive order and things of that sort to try to, try to take this back. Um, and maybe you get something out of Congress, though I don't think that some of the laws that are being proposed you know, beat a filibuster. Um, but I think that's, that's where it would be. I, 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 it would take a, a broad declaration from the White House to change the day-to-day operation at a lot of different places. 
But uh, as Professor Nielsen alluded to, there are ways that uh, Chevron and Hour could go that aren't just the Supreme Court. Yeah. Go, right. We could have a law that says we get rid of Chevron and Hour, and such a law has passed. The House. Uh, the House <laughs> with five Democratic votes. Uh, so what happens in the Senate? Uh, Mitch McConnell is, I think, more pro-agency than the House yeah. member. He is married to the head of an agency. Yes. Uh, but uh, it's also possible that uh, enough liberals to get over, enough Democrats to get over the filibuster will realize getting rid of Chevron an hour will be really good for the next four years, and we're not looking beyond the next four years yeah. right now. No, I, 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 I can't I shouldn't say this because I'm not 100% sure. I think today that um, they reproposed the uh, Regulatory Accountability Act in, in the Senate, and I think it was um, Senator Heitkamp and Senator. Hmm? Um, she presumably had a Republican. Yeah, that's right. I, I, is it Portman? I think it might be Senator Portman. Um, and that would be the law. Again, um, that's dangerous to opine um, based on headlines, but that's what it looked like. So there's some bipartisan even there. Um, I, don't, I don't see that overcoming the filibuster, um, but that could just change everything. Um, they could just pass a law. Then we're, uh, we were joking earlier, like, what do they do if they just get rid of Chevron? Like, uh, I'm glad we published already. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know how this goes for my tenure file, but uh, it was, I guess I've become a legal historian. Um, <laughs> um, guys, uh, thank you so much for coming. Would you please join me in thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.